Welcome to the podcast, In and Through exists to equip the church to be hearers and doers of the word. My name is Tim. My name is Marshall. All right. Good job, Marshall. Good job. Good so job. far. Oh, thanks. You nailed it. Thanks, man. I got my name. I just want to be more encouraging. I got my name. Yeah. I I appreciate that. Where do you come from? <laughs> I have no for? idea. I was like, is this I based on a comment that I made? No, I, I froze. I, like, we started. I had nothing, nowhere to go, and okay. I just froze. Oh. That, that's on me. You just didn't have anything to like chat about? Nothing. I'll, I have something to chat about. Okay, let's hear it. So when I was preparing for the podcast earlier, okay. I made myself a bowl of chicken noodle soup mm-hmm. and like almost finished the bowl, but there was that little bit left mm-hmm. and knocked the bowl over onto my church history book. So now there's chicken noodle soup on it. Oh, but man. then it made me think, you know how there's that whole like series of chicken soup for the whatever? <laughs> I could I could write the chicken soup for the church historian. Boom. You've got you don't have to write it. You got it right there. It's yeah. <laughs> Who's still like, What is it? It's 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 just a church history textbook with chicken noodle soup <laughs> spilled all over it. It's niche. It's niche. Admittedly, it's niche. But you know, I think, I think this goes down as the worst opening for a podcast. <laughs> no, it's not. not only that we've ever done. Maybe that has ever been done. <laughs> I think we should move on. Okay, let's move on. I got to laugh out of you. Come on. Come on. Okay. So let's talk about what is going on uh, in the Roman Empire. So we're we're cleaning up the end of the second century and mm-hmm. into a little bit of the third now. Um, in, in the Roman Empire, um, we're going to start with a guy named Commodus. I just got to talk about Commodus for like two minutes just because the guy is crazy. If you've ever seen the movie Gladiator, he's, right? he's the bad guy in Gladiator. That's Commodus. And... You know, sometimes Hollywood plays things up. I feel like they kind of got him right. Oh, yeah? Dude was an absolute megalomaniac. Yeah, yeah. So he like he wanted to participate in the gladiatorial games because he thought he was Hercules uh, reincarnate. And he always won. Um, what do you know? <laughs> <laughs> like, always. Not that it would ever be fixed. Yeah, no, no, certainly not, right? Yeah, so he pretended to be Hercules. He He renamed Rome. He renamed Rome after himself. He called it the Colonia Lucia Ania Comodiana from Commodus. He he literally renamed Rome after himself. Awesome. He renamed the 12 months, because you know how like Roman empires kind of accumulate names for themselves? Mm-hmm. Well, he had accumulated 12 names and thought, you know what's you know what a great idea is? Just <laughs> just rename the 12 months of the year after my 12 names. That's fantastic. Yeah. He was like just bonkers. Anyways. Uh, but he also had decided for this big, they were going to celebrate this big year of festivities and, you know, to kick it off, he was going to execute a bunch of people that were close to him, even some of his own advisors. Okay. (laughs) So they found out and they, they hired his wrestling partner slash coach, a man named Narcissus to strangle him in the bath. And that's how Commodus dies. (laughs) <laughs> so it, yeah it seems like when it's one-on-one and it's not fixed what do you know uh he's actually defeatable i got a party idea i got a party idea how about this year at the staff christmas party all of you die <laughs> yeah pretty much wow so interesting i didn't know that yeah so anyways um so yeah so and then after his death it kicks off you know a few episodes ago we talked about 
this this time in the Roman Empire called the year of four emperors. Mm-hmm. Well, then here we go. In 193, we get the year of five emperors. They don't even make it a quarter. No, it's <laughs> it's pretty bad. And like, I'm not going to go into all the, the details, but essentially it's like that that, you know, purple imperial robe is just kind of up for the highest bidder. The Praetorian Guard, which is kind of like the special forces slash police. They're just like, who wants it? Okay, how much are you going to pay us? Right. It's literally it just it becomes as base as that at one point. Right. Um, and it ends up ends up there's all this conflict and convoluted stuff. And you can you know, you can go read up on it if you want. But uh, the last man standing is Septimius Severus. Just a little last minute research done. Oh, yeah. Listening to the word Severus, I'm thinking, hmm, does that sound like anything? Severus is, spoiler, the root, the Latin root from which we get the English word severe. Mm-hmm. And that will prove to be the case. It but will. M- more on that in a little bit. Um, so what we're going to talk about, so last week we talked a lot about the heretics and all the nasty, crazy stuff yep. they were involved in. But at the same time, those guys were operating kind of in the late 100s, early 200s. Uh, there's a number of you know, church fathers, mm-hmm. you know, right? These influential um, pastors, theologians, apologists that are continuing the work. Um, Let me ask you this. Mm. Do you think people struggle with the term church father because it feels too Catholic? Yeah. I know I do. Yeah, but I, I do too. But that's just what they're called. So it's like, I don't like the name, but like. Right. That's what they are. They're they're early pastors and teachers in the church. Yeah, prominent lead prominent early leaders. Right. I don't know. Like that they put an evangelical Baptist spin on yeah, who to knows? make it sound less Catholic, I guess. Right. Whatever. Yeah. But that's what they were. That's essentially all they were. They were just prominent teachers, writers, right? Like we have these people in our world today, right? Yeah. People that like aren't necessarily immediately, you know, in our churches or, or anything like that, but are still influential in the greater Christian world. Right. And, and and all of this predates the organized Roman Catholic Church mm-hmm. that the concept of the father being the priest as a very Catholic thing mm-hmm. is something that we deal with today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they didn't call themselves church fathers. No. No, There's. it's kind of like some of these like titles and laurels and whatever are kind of put back on them after the fact right by the kind of the roman church once it kind of grows into this very hierarchical thing right right once it in in the same way that we were talking about pseudepigraphy claiming people's names on your writings right right there was also this false application later by the roman catholic church of association and sort of the apostolic line Right. Mm-hmm. This person was a part and this person and then this person and now me. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And that's yeah. very. Yeah. It's it's. Yeah. It it's that's not unimportant even at this stage. No. Right. No. Because because there is a certain degree of this is the teaching passed down by the apostles. Right. Right. So like Peter to Polycarp to Clement to whoever. Right. Like that's there is a sense of that. But I think the degree of that, it, it, it's kind of overemphasized and exaggerated later by the Roman church to say, like, see, that's the thing. That's why we're the true church and everything else right. is garbage. Um, I think at this point in time, it's like, no, no, no. Like, 
the church is still relatively small, right? And so, like, and there's all these other side things happening, you know, all around them, all these heresies and stuff. So it's like who you're connected to, who you kind of trace your theological lineage through is is important. Yeah, it, it, these these connections matter. What I'm just saying is later to backtrack that, it gets applied in a false way. Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, totally. All right, but anyway, we move on past our little hurdle <laughs> of the term church father. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And talk about some early teaching pastors. Sure. <laughs> some of them are more pastoral than others. Others are more kind of philosophical. But the first one we'll talk about is Irenaeus. Born around 130. Irenaeus? Irenaeus? It goes both ways. I don't know. Yeah. Potato, potato. Uh, born in Smyrna. Um, mm-hmm. Which seems to be kind of a lot of guys, a lot of important early church leaders from Smyrna. In fact, a known acquaintance of Polycarp. Yes, that's true. Yeah, yeah. Um, unlike a lot of these early Christian leaders that we read about, uh, he was actually brought up in a Christian family. Isn't that fascinating? Yeah. I mean, just kind of, uh, it's it's just different than the, the path that a lot of these other guys take. Right, and, and as later we're going to talk about origin, also mm-hmm. born to a Christian family. Right, yes, it's true. But this is this is such a interesting thing because it's second generation church mm-hmm, mm-hmm. not not just through conversion mm-hmm. but people born into the faith mm-hmm. and uh in in a way that many of us experience now sure yeah um this is the dawning of that yeah right yeah yes first sunday school class Right, children's ministry. The first time the nursery workers were upset <laughs> that the pastor went too long. None of that happened. <laughs> no, none of that happened. Until Irenaeus. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This uh, is where Irenaeus handles the doctrine of baby dedications. <laughs> <laughs> so he ends up serving uh, in what is now Lyon in kind of central southern France, which um, is kind of on the a bit of like the fringe of the empire. It's kind of a, it's a bit, it's a kind of important city, but it's kind of out of the way, right? It's, it's no Alexandria. Right. Right. It's no Athens. It's no Rome, obviously. Uh, but he's, you know, he works to expand the reach of Christianity in that Western part of the Roman empire. Yeah. Cause when we think of the Roman empire, when we think of Rome now, we think Italy, Europe. And so that's kind of the region in the mind, mm-hmm. but the Roman empire Rome wasn't central geographically mm. in the Roman Empire. Right. It yeah. was sort of the western end. Yeah. Much of the Roman Empire was actually east. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so for France, that's pushing yeah. things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's kind of like not far from where, you know, barbarian hosts would come cross the Rhine and wreak havoc and do other Celtic barbarian things. Um Anyways, um, a lot of his surviving writings uh, had to do with countering the heresies, so the things that we discussed last week. Um, Particularly false gnosis. Yes. This idea that you have a a special knowledge, Mm -hmm. the division of biblical interpretation into what it says Mm. and what it means. Mm. Right? (laughs) Two interpretations. There's the face value (laughs) reading, and then there's the entirely spiritual reading. The secret code reading. Right. Yeah. That has literally nothing to do with what is on the page. Right. Uh, that's what <laughs> Gnosticism 
had has come to at this point. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and Irenaeus is like, I think it means what it means. Yeah, and so what he does is like he he uses scriptural evidence to denounce Gnostic teachings about Jesus. He's like, you guys say you're all about Jesus. Well, this is what Jesus said, and it doesn't sound anything like what you guys are all about. Which is a right thing to do, mm-hmm. but from the Gnostic perspective, only opens itself up to, well, that's because you're only reading the face value <laughs> interpretation. <laughs> if you knew the secret message that's right. revealed to us by the Spirit, then you would know that you're off. <laughs> he also he also stresses the unity between Old and New Testaments, yes. um, which is an important thing. Again, something that the, a lot of the Gnostics were not interested in the Old Testament. Because again, remember, in, the, in a lot of their minds, the Old Testament God was a lesser evil God. Uh, more akin to our our concept of Satan than um, than God Himself. So yeah, I mean, a lot of times when I'm trying to explain to people the difference between the New Testament and the Old Testament, mm-hmm. I say we have to remember in the context of reading the Old Testament, this was a physical people mm. with physical promise for a physical kingdom mm-hmm. and physical blessing. Right. Which is why prosperity gospel loves to go back to the Old Testament mm-hmm. and say, see, your barns will be filled. Right. Right? We're <laughs> like, well, those were physical manifestations mm-hmm. that Jesus is going to later tell us were shadows of a spiritual truth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? And uh, you can see where a Gnostic would say, this is far too physical right. <laughs> to be spiritual. Yeah, yeah. And and he, you know, he kind of counters this idea of, gnosis which is from gnostic this true knowledge true knowledge is the knowledge of christ and it redeems bodily existence rather than escapes from it so it's not right so like there because the because we have we believe in a physical resurrection right Mm -hmm. and so our knowledge our faith in christ is what brings us or what will bring us into a fully redeemed bodily existence rather than elevating ourselves into some other spiritual plane escaping you know right what what this world offers um the other cool thing that he did so in this early part of church history we we know that the gospels the gospels were written to specific audiences initially right now they were circulating whatnot but certain gospels tended to be favored in certain geographical areas Mm mm-hmm um, to say, well, this was the one that was written to us directly or to like, you know, you know, so Asia Minor, like where John, what, like they were like all about John, right? We're more kind of in the, in the Middle East. It was, you know, all about Matthew, right? Cause written to more of a Jewish audience. But what he ends up doing is saying like, no, 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 you don't elevate one above the other. There are four, they are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they're all great. And you read them together in cooperation with one another. Um, and he says that explicitly in his writings and mm-hmm. that's just a helpful thing to, to, to know that that was, you know, that's where he was at in his writings. Like he quotes virtually every book of the new Testament canon right. that we have, which is profound mm-hmm. because we don't know when Irenaeus dies. No, we know that he has participation in an event that takes place in 198. Mm-hmm. So at, after that, at some point, mm-hmm. he dies. Yeah. But we don't know. We know it was before the third century. Oh, for sure. Within the second century. Oh, yeah. Uh, he was alive and writing. Mm-hmm. And he is quoting 
the what is now the canon of New Testament scripture, which some will allege wasn't formed until much later. Mm-hmm. And here he is saying there are four. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And he affirms the writings of Paul and all these other things. Right. And and so and it's 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 helpful for us because it means that by the time that he's writing these things, these things are obviously all written. I mean, we would believe that, but there's certain liberal scholars that wouldn't. But they've all been written. They've all been copied enough and circulated enough that when he's writing to someone else in another part of the empire and he quotes First Peter or Ephesians or the Gospel of Mark, mm-hmm. it's seen as this is a, this is a recognized thing. I'm speaking with a degree of authority here because it's in line with scripture what I'm what I'm quoting right right so it's like not only are they done but they've been circulated they they are known they are established they are recognized right um so so already at this stage of the game this is this is already happening um, nobody's carrying around the you know second century equivalent of an NIV bible all put together but these books are recognized um yeah, so I think there was, you know, there, there's some helpful things that he gets into. Um, one of the things he, he talks about, and a couple of other guys, and this is kind of the last thing I had on him, unless you have you have more. Um, he talks about when, when trying to discern true Christian teaching, he points to the fact that you have these churches in Antioch, Alexandria, Smyrna, Rome, wherever, that have all kind of been developing on their own. They're, they're in contact with one another, but they're, mm-hmm. I mean, a thousand mile difference made a big deal at this time era in history. And he says they've been developing for a hundred years now, and they're still holding to the same doctrinal truths. They're still holding to the same, the same faith. Mm-hmm. And that is how you know that these are authentic, true churches because they've stayed true to what was entrusted to them by Christ and through his apostles. So yeah, the, the, the foundation there is firm enough that they're not moving with every shift mm-hmm. of of an idea that comes along. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. And then sort of overlapping, mm-hmm. we have origin. Yeah, origin. Yeah, origin of Alexandria. Who, y- you wanted to do a quick glimpse on Clement, right? He was a student of Clement. Right. So we talked about Clement of Rome. Mm-hmm. This is a different Clement. Right. Of Alexandria. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, So whereas yesterday we talked about Alexandria as a new hub for the Christian faith, Mm -hmm. some of the figures who are a part of that. Yeah. Right. What do we know about Clement? Uh, Clement, born in Athens to pagan parents. And he, like a lot of these guys, young man, goes searching for the answers to life's deepest questions and finds them in Christianity, in Alexandria, and becomes a preeminent teacher there theologian, philosopher, thinker. Um, he was an apologist, and he wrote a lot about the relationship between faith and reason. Um, he wrote he wrote certain things so, so that pagans would be open to Christianity, but he also wrote certain texts so that Christians might be open to reason and doing philosophy, mm-hmm. which was a bit of a, a thing. I think that one of the neat things I was thinking about is like if Irenaeus— in this kind of smaller place in kind of a backwater. He's maybe, I'm going to drop some names here, but I know these guys don't listen to the podcast. He's like, maybe more like a John Piper. He's very pastoral. Yep. Right. He's okay. pastoral. Um, Clement is a Tim Keller. He's in a metropolitan area. 
affluent area, a lot of wealth, a lot of education, and he's going to interact with the world in a much more favorable way. Uh, not, I don't want to say anything, I'm not trying to say anything negative about that, but he's going to handle ideas from outside of Christianity with, um, a lot more regularity. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so, so that is to say he, he's not just out of hand rejecting every idea that comes to mm-hmm. him, mm-hmm. but developing those ideas toward Christ and the gospel. Yeah. And I think it's like, it's true of, you know, Christian leaders and authors today, like your context is going to shape your approach to some degree. Mm-hmm. Right. Sure. Like, right. Like, I mean, the way that we do ministry, you know, in a relatively small town, Stratford, Ontario, Canada is different than if you or I was in New York city. Right. Or even downtown Toronto. Right. Like, I mean, there's cultural differences there that are going to impact your approach. So just something yep. I noticed when I was kind of reading up on them. So as origin is working, Mm-hmm. Uh, or sorry, as Clement is working there in Alexandria, mm-hmm. uh, one figure in the church, Leonidas, is uh, going to have a son. Mm-hmm. And in 185, he names that son Adamantius. 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 Like origin it. wasn't his name. Interesting. Wasn't his original name? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I'm on fire. Ooh, you're something. <laughs> Adamantius. Do you want to know what Adamantius means? Sounds like something from a fantasy novel. Sounds like something you make swords out of, but... Man of Steel. Oh, hey! Whoa, dude. Okay. His, he was the original Superman. Because Adam means man. Yeah, wow. Man of Steel. That's super cool. He's the Man of Steel. And, and here's the further thing. When you think about Superman's emblem on his chest, mm-hmm. what's the shape? Like a... I don't even. It's a diamond, right? An S. I guess it is. Yeah, yeah. An yeah. S worked into a diamond yeah, shape. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Steel from the adamantius can also be translated diamond. Okay. Wow. So dually, Superman, the original, the OG Superman. But he leaves it behind to become Origin, the Church Father. He does. Okay. No, he. That's not true. He. <laughs> he is born to a Christian family. Mm-hmm. Christ has been a part of his life. Sort of all along, okay. right? From the beginnings. Uh, he was a part of the first nursery. And <laughs> and his father ends up being martyred by Septimus the Severe. Oh, no. Not directly. Sure. But through the wave of martyrdom that, because we've talked about it ebbing and flowing. Mm-hmm. It's flowing mm-hmm. at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, and his father is martyred. And so one of the ways that he takes on uh, to help his family is he starts teaching secularly. Okay. So he's teaching in the church, mm-hmm. but he's also teaching philosophy in a secular way. Interesting. Uh, at one point, in what some interpret, uh, an act of radical piety, mm. sells off all of his manuscripts, his secular manuscripts, for like pennies. Okay. Like just get them out of here, get them gone kind of a thing. Wow. Once his family doesn't need him anymore mm-hmm. as far as financially mm-hmm. uh, to support them. And so uh, he sells them off. He's done with them. He dives headlong into the church. Uh, and he does make a bit of a return 
to the philosophy world. Okay. So he, he runs into a guy who's struggling with faith. Some say that he's he ends up being a disciple of Origen. Some say that Origen was had a hand in his conversion. Okay. Uh, but Ambrose. Oh, okay. Also a yeah. church father. Yeah. From this same period. Mm-hmm. And Ambrose is persuaded by Origen because he shows that thought, philosophy, thought, mm-hmm. reason mm-hmm. is congruent with Christian worldview, mm-hmm. and that the Christian worldview actually is the best means right. of understanding the world around us. Mm-hmm. And so, as we've been saying over and over again, right, like this this idea of apologetics and the marrying of philosophy, human reason, and Christianity, the pursuit of truth landing you at the foot of the cross, mm-hmm. I... We, as Christians, we should just expect that. Yeah. Uh, but for whatever reason, we've gotten into this world where I've heard so many people say, you've got to be careful how much you go and learn. You don't want to become too studied. Those kinds mm-hmm. of things will lead you away from your faith. Yeah. And we're seeing it from the beginning, these major people in the church. Mm-hmm. That's how they came to the church. Oh, yeah. Seeking truth, and they found it. Oh, yeah. And he had a name. This might shock some people here. Uh <laughs> We learn secular philosophy at seminary. Sure. <laughs> like we we learn secular philosophy. We learn like we learn from we learn from people that like we totally disagree with. But it it's helpful mm-hmm. to understand how people think and the ways that people have thought and reasoned through things. And it makes you a more effective Christian when you don't shy away from those things. Yeah. Um so anyways. Right. And so and so in his conversations with Ambrose, Ambrose really encourages him to get back into the philosophy game right, and start right. married, marrying again reason and his Christian worldview. And so mm-hmm. that starts showing up in his later writings. Mm-hmm. Um, Origen does some good stuff. He does eventually start dabbling in universalism right. to the point that he might be the first well-known Christian universalist. Right. Uh, which is just one of those things that makes you want to sink your head and be like, origin. Yeah. I think his interpretation of it, well, because because I think, because I, I read some of that stuff about what he said regarding that. So it seems to be he's like, he's kind of like, well, at judgment, the souls of these people will be so convicted that they'll repent then and there as though it's like almost like after death there'll be an opportunity to repent mm-hmm. again right it's kind of his thing and he says once they see it they'll know and then that's when you know what i mean so it's kind of that version of it yeah i i'm no scholar in the works of origin no neither am i and i'm not going to pretend to be the the only way to really know what these guys believed is to read their original works mm-hmm. all of them mm-hmm. not just part of them right because the majority of what's going on at this time is not people who are writing a systematic theology. Mm-hmm. And if you don't know what a systematic theology is, what it is, is is on occasion, someone rises to such prowess as a Christian <laughs> theologian that they would take it upon themselves to write the epitome of all of their work, which is everything that I believe about the Christian faith and how it works together. Yeah, in one concise 1,500-page book or something. They're <laughs> always huge. Yeah. They have to be. Yeah. Um, 
that's not what these guys are doing, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. When we look at these guys, this is not, you know, Bart writing dogmatics, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Which is a systematic theology across 13 volumes, <laughs> right? We're, we're, not, we're not talking about that. What they're doing is they are hearing about things that are popping up, mm-hmm. and they're saying, no, that can't be right. This is what's right. And so most of their writings are isolated to specific instances that are going on. They're addressing certain instances. And so in that, mm-hmm. some of what they're saying is colored. Some of it is like divided and sparsed up. It, it's really not helpful to take an early church father mm-hmm. determined what they believe because of a soundbite. Right. Right. Because there's so much need for context. And so yeah. that's one disclaimer, me trying to give some grace to these guys. Mm-hmm. The other disclaimer we've already done, but I think it's worth repeating we are 2,000 years into addressing right and wrong doctrine. Mm-hmm. And so for that, this is going to sound awful. We are in some ways better educated on these things. Not that we're better thinkers. Right. Because these guys laid foundations mm-hmm. I couldn't do. Right. But for 2,000 years, people have been talking about them and reasoning mm-hmm. and saying, well, could it be this? Well, no, because of this. Oh, you're right. I haven't thought about that, right? Mm-hmm. This has been going on for so long that we have this foundation built up under us. Yeah, we stand on the shoulders of giants. Right. Right. And so so for that, we're higher mm-hmm. because we're standing on their shoulders. Yep. Uh, someone's going to hear that and be like, Tim thinks he's smarter than Origin. <laughs> I don't think I'm smarter than Origin. Um, so, so those are some of the things that we have to take into consideration. Right, right. But it seems that Origen, in reading the book of Revelation, and coming to the conclusion that many still hold, uh, which is not an unorthodox thing, that there will be two resurrections, Mm -hmm. it seems that there is something of repentance offered in the second resurrection that's not like a a chronological apocalypse thing, but at an end-of-life thing. Right, right, right. That there's an opportunity at some point for everyone to repent. Mm-hmm. Uh, that repentance is still based on Christ and his cross. Mm. Um, but that genuine gospel message that we know to be true and orthodox mm-hmm. will be acknowledged by everyone, right. um, which is problematic. It, there's some, yeah. And so I, I was thinking about this. I was thinking if somebody came to me, w- the way that we disclaimer this and said, well, how do you best then go about reading the early church fathers? Mm. My first question would be, why do you want to read the early church fathers? Like, is it curiosity? Mm. Or are you like, no, this is better theology for me to grab onto and learn from? Mm. Because maybe it's not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? Yeah. No. Which, if Wyatt Graham is listening, he's going to say, You're everyone right. should read the Church of <laughs> But he's not listening. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, let's get into uh, the last character we're going to talk about, um, Tertullian. Tertullian was uh, born in Carthage, which is actually North Africa, so like modern day Tunisia. Yeah, this is this is a thing, right? This is the thing that we need to consider mm-hmm. when we talk about Catholic Church. We think Roman Catholic Church, mm-hmm. and I would guarantee most people think Europe. Mm-hmm. You made a point maybe two episodes ago mm-hmm. that we need to realize how much of Turkey is a part of this, mm-hmm. right? Like that whole. Uh, Eastern Europe block, mm-hmm. that this is where everything is going on. Mm-hmm. The Middle East, Eastern Europe, kind of a realm. It, it's not... And North Africa, right? It's not 
white Anglo Europe. No. So, right? so far, the church fathers we've spoken of, one is from Turkey, two are uh, operating out of Egypt, and then this guy's from North Africa. Right. So, and not this even, none of them even in Rome. <laughs> for hundreds of years. Yeah. I don't Augustine. Know, yeah. Yeah. Right? And so, and so our, our mindset mm-hmm. of where the church comes from, Reformation, late Catholic church, is only about 500 years old. Right. And the idea of missionaries in Saharan Africa and Northern Africa mm-hmm. is not the same as it is now. Mm-hmm. Where now we're like, oh, these unreached people, they were the original church. They were the original people groups. <laughs> right. Now there might be unreached people groups there, yeah. but they were the original yeah. groups. And and I think it's it's a powerful thing for us to recognize that. Mm-hmm. Um I will say this, sometimes race gets brought into this. Right. We there's a lot of moving around here. We don't know exactly. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. The skin color of these people. Sure. It, it's worth acknowledging that what was common for the day would have been them and, and that yeah. they're not immigrants in. Yeah. I'm so, I feel pretty safe saying darker skin tone than mine probably <laughs> right like i mean <laughs> i know my, my heritage is very northern european right so these like it but the reality is that like it also wasn't race wasn't necessarily seen the same way mm-hmm. in the early roman empire it really just came down to are you a citizen or not and and less about the color of your skin or who your grandparents were yeah my um, my whole point was not to raise the race card okay. but that oftentimes we think of christianity as, as a white thing a white man's religion yeah it's not and as a european based religion mm-hmm. and neither of those things are true yeah yeah especially today in <laughs> fact in fact that's a very modern construct mhm mm-hmm. because Northern Europe is not going to come into play for quite a while. Yeah, no, they're not going to get the gospel for for a bit. So, um, anyway, yeah. just a, just a point of interest since we're talking yep. about interesting historical yeah. things. Yeah, for sure. Um, Tertullian might have been the son of a Roman centurion, which is kind of cool. Maybe uh, trained as a lawyer. Um, got really into apologetics. Yeah, uh, really into it. He um, he he kind of contended against those rumors that we talked about a couple episodes back about like children being sacrificed and stuff. He was, you know, he was really into that. He talked about martyrdom. He taught, he wrote to, he wrote to the pagans talking about how like, even when they kill Christians, like you you can kill us, but you can't beat us. He was kind of the first one to, to coin that, this idea of like the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Like mm-hmm. that was, he, he starts talking about that. Um, he wrote five, five whole books against Marcion who we talked about last week. <laughs> it's like, yeah, man, you need to write five books <laughs> about how terrible someone's theology is, but he, that did. is, that is taking a soapbox. Yeah. Now, unlike Clement and origin, Tertullian hated Greek philosophy. He hated it. Uh, he called them the forefathers of heretics. <laughs> <laughs> so, Okay, so let's deal with. There's some other obviously. I'm sure we both have, have lots of talk about. about well, I, I just want to throw in a couple more biographical things. Okay, sure, yeah, yeah. We have no idea. I'm going to call him Tertullian just because that's how I've always I've heard yeah. it said. It, yeah. it gets said Tertullian, both ways. Tertullian. It's both ways with a lot of these, and it's just whatever you're comfortable yeah. with. Um, we have no idea when he was born or died. Yeah, not really. It's not really recorded. Um, 
it's all just sort of like this secondary information that we we know when he lived because of the people he wrote about and wrote right, to. Right, right, right. Uh, but unlike the rest of these, we don't have any logged, which is very uncommon because Rome was logging dates of birth and death and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, keeping count of that. We don't have any of that on him. Mm-hmm. Um, he is arguably the first Christian to write in Latin. The oh, first to bring Latin in as that sort of language, which would end up being the language of the church mm-hmm. for a very long time. Like a thousand years. And, and and so he has this spat, apparently, this this beef with Rome, who's like, we're all going to be Roman and we're going to do Roman things. And as the church was spreading, spreading some of these Roman cultural things, and he's like, I'm from Carthage and I want to be from Carthage. Mm. And and I don't in order to be a Christian, I don't need to be Roman. More Roman. Right. Which is a really interesting thing in modern missionaries. Yeah. Because we have a really bad habit in modern missions mm. of not only trying to Christianize but Western but westernize oh, societies. Man, preach. We yeah. go in we go in and do things and we say like, oh, you know what? Biblical modesty is a thing. Right. What constitutes modesty is a social construct. Yeah. And not a biblical construct. Yeah. And to go into a village and to say to someone, you need to dress like this because this is Christian modesty. Right? This is why you have Saharan African tribes where the men are wearing suits to church. Right. Just like they're European <laughs> or American or Canadian or whatever they might be, right? And it just doesn't fit their culture. It's like blazing hot. Yeah. Right? Uh, it, now that may not be the case so much because they are there is you know business association that sure, is a global sure, thing in the sure. way people dress and suit. But but that idea that we would go in and say this mo- this constitutes modesty, and so this is how you have to be in order to be Christian, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. We have some really difficult ones. Modesty can become a difficult one. Mm-hmm. Uh, other difficult ones when when Arabs come to Christ. Mm-hmm. And they want to talk about God. God is not a proper noun. Right. God is just a common noun mm-hmm. to define deity. Mm-hmm. And to say that in Arabic, yeah, you would say Allah, which is also not a proper noun. Right. It just means God. Mm-hmm. And so do missionaries tell Arabs you, you have to use a different term for God, right. even though this is your language? Yeah. Right. And, and so missionaries, missionaries and missions groups, right thinking, in my opinion, missions groups battle with this. Mm-hmm. At what point are we Christianizing and at what point are we Westernizing? Yeah. And we want to do one and not the other. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, that was going on even then. Yeah. Because yeah. Tertullian's pushing against it and he's like, hey, I don't need to be Roman. And then consequently becomes the first arguably the first to really do significant writings in Latin. (laughs) Yeah. Before that, it was all a lot of Greek. Yeah. Armenian writings Mm -hmm. are ancient Syriac. Mm -hmm. Syriac. Yeah. Yeah. um, One of the cool things about Tertullian, here's the thing about Tertullian. Tertullian gets really good and then he gets bad. Um, You want to use, you want to use the analogy you. Yeah. He was the, he was the Anakin Skywalker. 
of Christianity. If, for those of you who don't know Star Wars, he was supposed to be the chosen Jedi, and then he turns to the dark side and becomes Darth Vader. And now if you haven't watched Star Wars, you just ruined like four movies. Oh, come on. They've had like <laughs> they've had like 40 years to watch those. They've been out for twice as long as I've been but alive. But he's already he's already Vader by the old for the old ones. It's oh, the that's new true. Ones. Yeah, well, I don't know. Anyways, he's one of the first perhaps the first to explicitly describe the godhead as trinity, to use that explicit word. So obviously we believe that the scriptures allude to this fact. This is a scriptural tr- a truth derived from scripture, but he actually uses the word mm-hmm. and he unpacks it in a way that we'd be familiar with three persons, one substance. Right. Um, so in that sense, we're like, nice. Awesome. Yeah. He's off to a great start. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he, he still kind of got into this idea of the eternal subordination of the sun, um, which I feel is a, is a problematic view. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are Christians today who, Christians we respect that. Prominent. Prominent, unfortunately, who disagree. And that's fine. Um, very, very rigid. Do you want to unpack what that is? I, I feel like we just let yeah. that assume. So eternal subordination of the sun is a teaching that the sun is always and has always been and will always be in subordination to the Father. So he is he is subordinate so he is lesser in authority Mm -hmm. so when when in philippians chapter Mm 2 it says that he seeing equality with god not something to be grasped humbled himself Mm -hmm. they would say he was always humbled yeah he he, that's my stab at saying no he wasn't yeah but (laughs) he humbled himself yes yeah he was not in his essence humbled already at a humbled state so he humbles himself to come to earth, mm-hmm. and, and all throughout John talks about being subject to the will he, of the he Father. He does it in all of the Gospels, but yep. specifically in John, he hammers on, I'm here to do the will of my Father, and that sort mm-hmm. of thing. Subjects mm-hmm. himself to the will of the Father. Mm-hmm. These would say, that's the way it always was, and always will be. Yeah. Um, I also don't agree and think it brings up about a number of problems, yeah. theologically. Yeah, I got into it with a profit regarding a textbook one time because of that but anyway, <laughs> that's a whole other story um was it a systematic theology it well actually it wasn't but I, that's in one of the yeah that's a whole yeah yep yep okay moving on uh tertullian had very very rigid views on morality and discipline mm-hmm. um at one point he criticizes uh the current bishop of rome for readmitting people who have committed fornication Right, sex outside of marriage, they repented of it and wanted to come back into the church, and the Bishop of Rome allowed them, and Tertullian's like, how dare you? Yeah, he he gets into this point where, like, there's initial repentance Mm -hmm. to come to Christ, Mm -hmm. sin after that, unforgivable. You're out, yeah. You're done. It's like, yeah, which is just a really, really hard take. So already we see that Tertullian's kind of moving in some some, um, concerning directions. Um, ultimately ends up adopting Montanism, mm. which is one of the heres I know, one of the heresies we talked about. That's the one that, with all the ecstatic prophecy and Montanist thinking, he was the Paraclete. And but here's the thing: here's and, and and it's one of these kind of mysteries of why. 
and you know different authors are kind of speculated and from what i can see it seems like that that legalistic side of him that no more grace after the initial repentance the montanists did have an extremely strict moral code uh far above and beyond what scripture called for far above and beyond what was common in the the church and so that might have been part of what drew him in because he's like oh these people are super serious like they're not afraid to kick out anybody and they don't mess around and they're you know they're not softies you know they're not letting people back in if they've stumbled you know yeah that's the attraction of legalism yeah the the attraction of legalism is is not always necessarily that people say i'd like to be a legalist Mm-hmm. I'd like to be a little hard about everything, mm-hmm. right? Or, or necessarily that they just read it and they're just like, "Oh, this is the way it goes." But, but it can be a a gradual entry mm-hmm. where a person looks at someone's teaching and they say, "I don't agree with that decision or the way that was said." Mm. Um, and so, in their minds, that becomes a loose or liberal way of doing things, and then all of a sudden, people start going. Well, this person agrees with me on that issue, mm-hmm. and we're going to team up over here. And if and if it's true about that issue, well, what about this issue? What about this issue? And all of a sudden, what this was was a single issue. Now is this compounding thing, and it just grows deeper and deeper. And conservatism mm. can get out of hand that way. Oh yeah, I'm going to get super current and super political. Okay. Oh boy. We we have seen. And we'll continue, I think, to see this happen in our immediate context over things like whether or not masks should be worn in church. Sure. Yeah. Right? Where all of a sudden people who didn't agree theologically mm-hmm. otherwise are rallied around a single issue. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and if that, then what about this? And then what about this? And yeah. all of a sudden that group um, can become, doesn't always, this is not... If you're thinking of a, any particular person or church, know that I'm not talking about them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm just talking hypothetically. Right. But those are the kinds of things that can lead to mm-hmm. very hyper-conservative kind of gatherings mm-hmm. where all of a sudden you see people leaving their churches and joining others over a single issue that becomes a bigger deal yeah. than it should have ever been. What's, yeah, and it's, it's interesting because, like, I, again, I, I know people who, over the mask issue— left a church and joined another that they disagree with on much more important matters right? than whether or not masks should be worn during a church service. And yet that this side issue became such a deal breaker for them that they're willing that, that they would prefer to unite themselves to Christians that they don't agree with on all sorts of levels of b- biblical interpretation. Mm hmm. But they're willing to overcome that because they have common political views. Right. So not to get too deep into no, we got, yeah, I know. that, but, but to say that's how a person like Tertullian mm-hmm. can say, look at all of these other churches mm-hmm. that are reinstating these people because of their repentance. Mm-hmm. This is not okay. Mm-hmm. And then in the, in the aftermath of majoring on the minors— find himself completely connected to a group that he would have written against mm-hmm. in, in previous times. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, so just to say, when, if you want to read Tertullian, 
read the early stuff. <laughs> there, there's yeah. some modern people I'm going to stay away from that I would say too. Read the early stuff. Yep. Their early books were fantastic. Yeah. Over time, they started falling. Mm-hmm. Um, read the early stuff. Yeah, and I think we've kind of brought up this concept um, a number of times in episodes already. And you know what, folks? It's probably going to keep coming. Oh, yeah. But there's a degree to which, as we reflect on these things happening, we see parallels in our modern day, and it's just comforting to know, as as unfortunate as it is, as heartbreaking maybe even as it is, that this, this was Tertullian's story, and this is maybe the story of some other pastor or someone else that you've admired and seems to have gone off the rails. Unfortunately, this is something that happens, right? It's a thing it that is. has happened. It's a thing that continues to happen and probably will continue to happen. And um, that's not dismissive. No. That's an acknowledgement. Yeah. Right? These were human beings. Mm-hmm. And our Christian leaders from the beginning and even now are human beings, mm-hmm. which means despite their position, they are still fallible. Yeah. And will in degrees fail mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. and and one thing that we have to be careful of is putting them too high on a pedestal yep. or expecting them to be something other than human mm-hmm. right that doesn't excuse heresy right yeah it doesn't excuse embezzlement mm-hmm. sexual immorality mm-hmm. or anything like that mm-hmm. that's not the point the point is that we can't ever be in a place where we're like oh well if we'll, let's get off Tortullian for a moment, we'll talk about Origin. Okay. Origin had a weird thought about the ultimate position of all humankind. So everything that Origin ever said was wrong. Right. <laughs> and Origin should be classified like this. Right. 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 Um, that that just isn't the case. Right. Mm. Now, do I read Origin to prepare for a Sunday morning? No. Mm-hmm. Why? Because I know he's coming with a perspective that's probably going to be sprinkled in throughout other things that he says. Mm-hmm. And I got other places I can learn from. Mm-hmm. Right? Right. But am I going to completely write him off and throw him away and say, thank goodness the church survived origin? No. Right. Yeah. Right? Uh, it's not a baby in bathwater scenario with any of these guys. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, we also aren't going to receive everything they ever did. Yeah. Your beloved reformers, mm-hmm. oh boy, when we get there, yeah. they were human. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, even some of your favorites. Just buckle up, folks. Um, and I think the same thing is true. You have to be careful even of the the people you put on a pedestal today. Mm-hmm. Right? So many people crestfallen when some of these guys fall from grace. When stuff comes out about... Ravi Zacharias, Mark Driscoll, whatever, mm-hmm. right? And people are shaken. Why are they shaken? Because they've they've invested so much into these human beings. Mm-hmm. And just be careful. Be careful. Guard your heart, right? Guard your heart in that regard, um, you know? Right. The, the best Christian teachers are nothing more than a marquee sign with an arrow. Mm-hmm pointing you to the thing you should be worshiping mm-hmm. and the thing that you should be appreciating. Mm-hmm. They themselves are 
not the thing to be admired. Mm -hmm. They are tools in the hands of God, Mm -hmm. a sign to point you to Christ who mediates our relationship with the Father. Yeah. And that has always been the case. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I feel like my sign is maybe done in crayon, but that's that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> or the blinking lights have burned out sometimes. <laughs> like we got to replace some bulbs. <laughs> yeah, it's like one of the letters is missing. And it's just like, what? Um, anyways, okay. Well, to kind of summarize all this and then kind of we'll, we'll kind of tie it up at, at the end here. What's going on towards the end of this is more persecution. Uh, we kind of mentioned Septimius Severus. Um, he's really occupied with handling and wrapping up a lot of internal affairs and foreign affairs, wars, essentially, uh, inside and outside the empire. But once he's done, um, he really tries to unify the empire. And every time an emperor really tries to get everybody under the same banner, it's bad for the Christians. Right. As weird as it sounds... <laughs> When Rome is busy fighting wars, their their focus is not on the church. Right. The more turmoil Rome is under, <laughs> the, the more peace the church has. <laughs> Doesn't make sense, but that's how it works. Um, and so he's, yeah, trying to reestablish order in the empire, new way of religious observance. All gods can be worshipped, but under the sun god. And obviously that's going to cause a problem for Christians and so persecution Right. flares up again under him. Um, it's bad. Still not as bad as it's going to get. We got a couple episodes and we'll get, we'll get there, but it's bad. Um, but what's, what's really neat. I, I did some number crunching cause I was kind of curious about some things. And now these, these numbers are estimates, but they're estimates of the number of Christians that existed in the Roman empire. At, kind of throughout the time period that we've been talking about. So if we go back to like a one fifty kind of where we've been the last couple episodes. Sure. There were maybe 40,000, 50,000 Christians across the entire empire. That is a tiny part of the total population. They figure there's probably about 50 million or more in the Roman Empire. So we're talking one-tenth of 1%. Is that? Yeah, like tiny. We get to the early 200s, kind of where we're leaving off here, and now there's two three hundred thousand christians and so now christians are definitely on the map right in a significant way Mm -hmm. but they're still not everywhere right but by the end of this next century by by the year 300 still before constantine still before any of that stuff before christianity is legalized there's four to six million ten percent when i was a kid and we would, uh, we would have the pick your favorite hymn night. Mm. I always picked. It only takes a spark <laughs> to get a fire going. Yeah. I'm not sure. I, I'd have to think through that song, and I don't even know really what the biblical or theological message of that song is. Mm-hmm. Um, something to consider. But that's kind of what's happening here. Oh yeah. So as these things are going on and as there's these heresies coming up and as people are teaching all sorts of things and as there's persecution flaring up again and again and again, and there's all this turmoil going on, the church is growing substantially. Mm -hmm. Like imagine if the church, like within a hundred years, multiplied 
10 times over. I mean, it couldn't today because there'd be more people than there are in the world, theoretically. So that's whatever. But but it's it's crazy, right? right? This is what's going on in the midst of all this, in the midst of these difficulties and these challenges and all of these things that are going on. Um, things are growing dramatically. And uh, so that's just kind of, it's something that we haven't really talked a whole lot about as we've been getting through this. But just to give people some perspective, this thing that kind of started out with, the apostles and some other followers and then Pentecost. And then now it's, I mean, now we're getting to the place where, um, there are many, many believers. Yep. And persecution is not beneficial to the individual, Mm -hmm. but it does grow the church over and over again Mm -hmm. as young Tertullian, Anakin Tertullian, (laughs) would have stayed him yeah thanks for listening this podcast is a resource of memorial baptist church in stratford ontario in cooperation with the gospel coalition of canada and is produced by alex walker see you next time see you next time